The Pali word vipassana literally means seeing clearly. <clears throat> seeing what clearly? Means seeing clearly the specific nature of each arising object, the sensations and sounds and images and thoughts. So seeing clearly what it is that's arising. And it also means seeing clearly the general characteristics of the whole process. That is, seeing into the nature of impermanence, of the unsatisfying quality of changing things, and of selflessness. This is in Pali, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfying, anatta, or selflessness. <clears throat> Understanding anatta is really the most difficult aspect, I think, of the Buddha's teaching. It's the hardest for us to understand. It's a tremendous puzzle the sense of no-self. What does it mean? So many different questions arise about this idea of selflessness. If there's no self, who is it that's reborn? If there's no self, who experiences karmic results? Who's making effort? Who's lazy? Now, if there's no self, who falls in love and who gets angry? Who remembers anything? Of course, that's happening less and less. (laughs) (laughs) So what does it mean? What does it mean? Because this is really the jewel of the Buddhist teaching the jewel of the understanding. Often, when we speak of this idea, people get afraid. You know, it's the sense of perhaps losing something. That's our very essence. So sometimes I think people imagine the understanding of selflessness as some kind of disintegration in a big cosmic flash and all of a sudden there's nothing. Or maybe there's an idea of some merging into an undifferentiated glob. (laughs) To come to an understanding to come to a deepening understanding of anatta, or selflessness, is really at the heart of our practice. Because it's at the heart of liberation, it's at the heart of freedom. And what's so beautiful about the endeavor of a long retreat is that over these months of practice, we really can begin to open to and to understand experientially, not just, not just intellectually, 
begin to understand experientially just what, is, what this sense of selflessness is. As the observing power of our mind grows, we begin to see more and more clearly that we're not who we thought we were. We're not the body, and we're not our thoughts, and we're not emotions. And one by one, all those things which we thought we were, we see we're not. And as we gain this insight, it's both a great surprise and finally a great relief. So tonight I'd like to talk about how the mind has created this very deeply conditioned pattern of belief in the sense of self. Where does it come from? Because it's a very deeply held understanding. You go up to almost anybody and just ask them whether they exist as a self, as a part of course. You know, this, it's on this belief that the whole world revolves. And so, if we want to understand anatta, we really have to understand how the mind has created and sustains this belief, because then we can begin to unpack it, free ourselves from this illusion. There is one factor of mind which keeps us conditioned, very strongly conditioned, to the conventional notion of self, of I. And it's interesting to look at this because it's exactly the same factor which in another capacity is the support for mindfulness. And this is the factor of perception. If you remember, we talked about it earlier, the quality of perception, it has a very specific function. The quality of perception is the simple, bare recognition of the object. It recognizes things, and it picks out the distinguishing marks of an object to store in our memories, so that when we see the thing again, we can recall it, we know what it is. When there is perception with mindfulness, what happens is that this bare recognition sets the mind up, it frames the object, so that we can then look at it more deeply with the power of observation. We recognize the surface appearance, we frame it, and then we look more deeply. That's perception with mindfulness. But when we have a very strong perception of objects, that is, we recognize the distinguishing appearances when there's a strong perception without mindfulness, 
know and remember only the surface appearance. And we solidify that memory with certain concepts about that object. Let's give you an example of all this. Of perception without strong mindfulness. We do this very often in our relationships with people. And people we know and people we've met many times. We see them, we recognize them, and we have a whole array of preconceptions based on our former perceptions. We remember their qualities and we create little boxes. Like, oh yeah, I know this person. This person is like this, 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 and this. And so when we meet them again, we're not really seeing them. We're not really with them. We're with our perception. We're with our memory. We're with our concepts about that person. And so the relationship, in some very fundamental way, is dead. Because we don't have a beginner's mind. We're not seeing that person with freshness. We're not seeing them with newness. This happens with almost all of our repetitive experiences, whether it's in the external world or repetitive experiences in the meditation practice. We see something over and over again. Perception recognizes the surface. Oh yes, in-breath. I know the in-breath. I've watched thousands of them. (laughs) And we just recognize, we have that bare perception, oh, in-breath. And there's not a careful looking, there's not a careful seeing, because we have this concept in our mind, this memory in our mind, of what the in-breath is. But we're not really there for this new one. It's a tremendous limitation when perception overrides mindfulness, or is stronger than mindfulness. We recognize something, we store it in our memory with a concept, it's a tremendous limitation on our, on our ability to see things and to understand things in a new way. In this regard, I want to tell you a really sad story. <laughs> it's just about this. It's about... It's about this. And this story, this... This happened years and years ago, and I just remembered it when I was sitting in Australia this last spring. It came to mind. Years ago, when I was still living at home, the son of a friend of mine was in school. He was a young boy, I mean, maybe five or six, seven, something like that or maybe even younger, I'm not sure. The teacher asked him what color an apple was. And he said, white. And the teacher said, no, that's wrong. Apples are red. And the boy tried to explain, you know, when you open an apple, it's white, it's not red. 
But this teacher's mind was so fixed on apples being red. You know, and it just yes, I could just hear it. I could just hear it. Yeah, apples are red. You know, and this is this, and this is this. And the fixation on the perception completely closed off. Apples are really more white than red. You know, when you really consider it. And I just, I felt so much sadness for this poor little boy. And I could just see part of his mind just, you know, locked into the surface appearance of things. And this is what this factor does when it's not co-joined with mindfulness. Okay, so it's this factor of perception. When it's without mindfulness, it recognizes the surface, the appearance, it stores it in memory with a concept, and then that's what we see over and over again. And that's what locks us into a very narrow and often inaccurate view of the world. There are two general perceptions which we commonly have about the world, about ourselves, which are the origin of an array of inaccurate conclusions. And it's these two perceptions, these two general perceptions, which keep us from a deepening understanding of the Dhamma. It keeps us from understanding and experiencing what selflessness actually means, what it's about. And so it's very helpful to understand how these two perceptions arise in our minds, because they're very habitual. They're really the way we see things. The first of them is the perception of solidity of things that comes through continuity. What this means is that we see things as being continuous. We don't see the discreteness of momentariness. We see things as unbroken. For an example, now we go to the movies and we get caught up in the story we get totally drawn in, which is, which is the whole point of going, of course. But really what's happening is separate frames of film. If we saw that, very unlikely we'd be so caught up and identified with the story because we'd, we'd really see what was going on. But it's happening so quickly that we don't see the separate frames. And so it all becomes linked together, it becomes continuous. And that's our perception, that's what we see to be true. As long as we have this perception of continuity of things, it keeps us from understanding the essential impermanence and momentariness of phenomena. 
We can know it intellectually. We can know that things are changing. But if we have this perception of continuity, we're not seeing it. We're not living that understanding of impermanence. I'd like to read something from a book by a friend of ours, Wes Nisker, who is the, one of the editors of The Inquiring Mind. Um, and he just published a book on crazy wisdom, sort of tracing all the different crazy wisdom schools of the East and the West. A Buddhist aphorism cautions us against missing the moon because we focused on the finger pointing at it. We might also take care not to miss the moon by assuming that today's moon is the same as yesterday's moon. The moon, too, is a process. Our language behaves as though reality was solid. On the simplest level in our language, we position a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. Just think for a moment of how we understand language. Two nouns, which are solid, existing things, surrounding a verb which is in some lesser, lesser order of reality. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or in process. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. So it's a very powerful conditioning in our lives. The very language that we live in, and which is continually reconditioning our minds, reinforces this notion of solidity, of continuity, of thingness. Why do we have this perception? If actually things are changing all the time, if they're momentarily arising and passing away, why is it so difficult to see? Why do we live as if nouns are real things? One reason which causes this illusion of the perception of continuity is the rapidity of change. It's happening so quickly that in our normal perception we don't see it. It's like the film. You know, or to an untrained ear, ring a bell, there's a sound. There's one sound. Of course, for you by now, you're way past seeing that as solid or continuous. Many, many momentary arisings and passings away. But when it happens quickly, we don't see it. 
we also get fooled by this illusion of continuity, not only because of the rapidity of change, but when we observe things from a distance. One of the classic examples, which is very common in Burma because of the environment, but it's also easy to understand. You know, when you look in the distance on the ground, you might see you know, just a stick lying there. And you look closely, a little more closely, and maybe you think it's a snake moving because you begin to see movement. And then you look even more closely and you begin to see ants you know, in a line that from a distance looks continuous, from up close, very obvious, it's discrete ants. So closeness of observation is one way of breaking through this illusion. Here's another example of missing something quite obvious when we observe from a distance. This is a, um, it was an article, either in a, like Newsweek or a newspaper, I can't remember exactly, but it was on a scientific report. Everything we have seen indicates that the solar system is far more dynamic than we originally anticipated. Before astronomers conceded that the outer planets might have been active in their first billion years of existence, but figured the last three billion were basically a holding pattern. Now we suspect that very few things are unchanged over three billion years. <laughs> That's a beginning. <laughs> we'll start with three billion and then <laughs> and maybe see that things are actually changing many billions of times a moment. In our practice, we really begin to break through this very prevalent perception, which is much more pervasive than we might normally think. Now, where we see things as solid, where we see things as continuous, where we're not seeing things in process. This, this view of things as nouns, as entities, rather than as an active changing process. The way of breaking through, or seeing through, that illusion of perception is through close and careful observation. We bring our mind, we train our minds to look closely and to increase the rate of perception. Or as mindfulness focuses, we begin to experience, not theoretically, not as, not as an idea, we actually experience the discreteness of things. For example, in one breath, in an in-breath or a rising movement, the first task, of course, is just to arrive there, you know, to basically settle, oh yes, this is the breath. 
But as we do that, as the mind settles a bit, and we, we begin to actually feel what a breath is, we see that it's not one thing. It's not some solid, unbroken event. One in-breath, one rising movement is made up of many discrete sensations. That the breath is a process of continual change. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that in your practice, seeing that very clearly. This is extremely significant. It may seem like something very ordinary, but it actually begins to free the mind from this grasp of this illusion of continuity. The same thing in the walking. When we begin to see the lifting movement or the, the forward movement, It's not just one movement. There are many discrete sensations which comprise that movement, sensations which are arising and passing in each moment. We really begin to see for ourselves and see deeply the changing nature of all phenomena. This is tremendously liberating from this illusion of perception. Okay, so one way the perception of solidity happens is through the continuity, the rapid continuity which keeps us from seeing. There's a second way that reinforces the sense of solidity of things. And that's through not seeing their composite nature. We see things perception. The nature of perception sees sees things as a whole, rather than seeing that things are all made up of interconnected parts. There's one very famous and classic example of this, in a Buddhist text called The Questions of King Melinda. King Melinda was was actually descended from the Greeks of uh, Alexander the Great as he conquered a good part of Asia. And one of the the kingdoms uh, that was conquered and, and became Buddhist was ruled by this Greek King Melinda. There was a very famous arhant, fully enlightened monk named Nagasena, who entered into dialogue with the king who, in good Greek philosophical fashion, had hundreds of questions about the Dhamma, about the practice. And Nagasena had this wonderful ability, through example and through logic, to respond to all these questions. One of the questions of King Melinda was about this notion of self. And Nagasena responded with this example, which has very many modern-day counterparts, because he used an image from those times. He told the king to consider a chariot. And he asked the king, point out to me what's the chariot. Are the wheels the chariot? Is the axle the chariot? 
is the seat of the chariot, so the backrest of the chariot. And the king replied, none of those things are the chariot. So Nagasena asked, does the chariot really exist? No, it just is a concept about all of these parts which are related to one another. It's the same thing if we look today at a car. Just in our ordinary understanding, all of us would, yeah, there's a car. Lots of different kinds of cars. We get attached to cars. But what is a car? When we look in the same way, when we look carefully, when we see the composite nature, we see that a car is simply a concept which describes a lot of different elements in relationship to one another. Car does not refer to anything existing in itself. Same thing with house. Same thing with body. And here things are getting closer. You know, we have this very strong belief that we have a body. We are the body. What is the body? Body is a concept which we have created through perception, through an illusion of perception. It's this perception of the solidity of things because we do not see carefully the composite nature. It's in exactly the same way that we create the notion of self. Just like chariot, just like car, just like house, just like body. So we've created this notion of self as being who we are, thinking that it's an existing thing. Yes, I am the self. Whereas in reality, it's just a concept referring to the interdependence and interrelationship of many constantly changing elements. There is no self-existing self. It's just an idea. We create these concepts and ideas, and they're often useful ones. I'm not suggesting that we do away with the concepts. Because often the ideas we create are useful, they serve a purpose. But we often create these concepts and ideas for things that are not actually there. And we don't see this, and because we don't see it, we get attached to them, and we become identified with them. There's a little saying by a writer named Wei Wu Wei, who was an Englishman who lived in Hong Kong, who wrote many, many wonderful books, kind of a Taoist, Buddhist, enlightened perspective. And he has these little anecdotes and quips, and one of his his little things was 
Holding on to the idea of self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. Okay, just to demonstrate to you, kind of a hands-on, so to speak, experiment now, to convince you of all this, (laughs) to bring it down to our experience. This is the finger experiment. Okay, so if if all of you would just kind of move your finger, just just get a sense of, and really, you know, you see it move, and you do it quickly, and there's a sense my finger is moving. Okay, now drop into your profound meditative state, <laughs> and move the finger, and move it really slowly. And just feel the sensations in the movement. And when you're just with the sensations, you're just feeling the sensations. Maybe a little tightness or pulsing or pressure. When you're just with the sensations, where is the finger? Finger disappears. There's no finger. There's no finger. (laughs) There's no hand. Now just uh, feel feel your hands touching, you know, wherever, on your knees or if they're pressing one another. The obvious perception is, yeah, I have two hands and they're resting on my knees. But when we observe closely, what is it that we feel? We feel different sensations. Pressure is not hand. Throbbing is not hand. Hand is a concept. Hand is an idea. No finger, no hand, no body. (laughs) We'll go a little further than that in a minute. It's tremendously liberating. First, to see our attachment to these concepts, to see how we've created the concepts through the perception of continuity, through the perception of solidity, from not looking carefully, from not seeing the rapidity of change, and from not seeing the composite nature of phenomena. It's tremendously freeing to see through all of this and to begin to let go of this reification of these notions of finger, of hand, of body, of self. Just think for a moment how much or how great the sense of ourselves, the sense of who we are, comes from the concept of body. There's a lot, there's a lot of identification with this idea. I have a body, I am the body. And to see that it's only a concept, that it doesn't actually exist. The thingness of it is an illusion. It's an illusion of perception. 
There are some other concepts which we've created which are equally imprisoning, which keep us in this very contracted prison of certain concepts. One is the concept of body. Another one, which is very powerful in our lives, is the concept of time. Now, we have created the ideas of past and future. And we live in that reality of past and future, that created reality. We live in it a lot. But what is it? When we actually look, when we look carefully, when we observe carefully, what is it that we find? It's a few thoughts. A lot of thoughts. You know, we're sitting here just trying to watch the breath, and these thoughts come. Some thoughts are memories and recollections, which we call past. Some, some thoughts are imagining, a fantasy, or anticipation, or plans. We call them future. And we believe that these concepts are a solid reality that there's the past, and there's the future, and it's like these huge weights on the moment. It's like we're burdened by, by our relationship, by our getting lost over and over again in this concept of past, in this concept of future. How many dramas have you lived through since you're here? about past and future. You know, about people and events and imagine things to come. Just to give you an idea of how, we're, how strongly we're conditioned by a particular viewpoint of time, we normally think of the past as behind us and the future ahead of us. And we're kind of walking from the past into the future. That's a fairly Western notion. There's one culture which views the past in front because we know it, we can see it. And the future is behind us because we can't see it. And so their notion is backing into the future. (laughs) Very different. And I'm sure that dissertations could be written about the implications of that different view of time, both of which are just concepts. To bring it right down to the experience in practice, a common, common example. How do you think about time relative to the retreat. Sometimes thoughts come. You think of the ends, you know, two or two and a half months off. And it seems endless. It's unimaginable how you're going to endure (laughs) having to watch that many risings and fallings. (laughs) And so this notion of time just kind of extends out and it makes everything so heavy. 
Other times, there may be a lot of interest and excitement, and, and the, the notion of two and a half months seems very short, and it's going so quickly, and, and there's a whole different reality. The Buddha talked in one sutta on things which were particular dangers for the development of concentration. And he was really a master at understanding the mind and what was conducive and what was detrimental to the development of wisdom. And he said two of the primary dangers for the development of concentration are these notions of past and future. Because to the degree that we are caught in this concept, when we don't see them merely as thoughts arising in the moment, we get lost. You know, and, and we all know, I mean, this happens countless, countless times, how much we get lost because of not seeing clearly because of investing a reality that does not exist into a concept which we have created. The reality which exists is that a particular thought is arising in the moment. That's all. And a thought comes and goes, that's light. It's what we do with it that creates the burden. There's the concept of the body, which we get attached to. It's not actually there. Concepts of time, which we get attached to and lost in, which are not actually there. There are all the concepts around self-images. You know, and this takes so many forms. It takes so many forms in the world. It takes so many forms in practice. One of the most common ones that I think most yogis go through at one time or another, is the self-image as a yogi, this evaluation or comparing, my, I'm a good yogi or I'm a bad yogi. And I saw it a lot you know, in, in working with Upandita and working with the reporting form, how difficult it was for me just to report very straightforwardly, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this happened. Because what my mind would do, would jump in, would be this constant evaluate, well, this really is supposed to be happening, and if I say this, it's going to look like this, and this, this endless kind of evaluating, comparing, and judging. And I was just impressed with the difficulty or at least for me, maybe it's different <laughs> for you, of just being simple, you know, just describing what's happening without any kind of self-image, without creating that self-image, or comparing, the comparing mind with other yogis. And I'm doing better, I'm doing worse. Something in, in the 1984 course where we were sitting here with with Sayadaw, I was driving myself crazy with this comparing mind until one day I was walking outside 
just outside um, this, this lower walking room. And it was in the springtime, and, and the flowers were coming up. And I just stopped. I was really in the throes of this tremendous comparing. And I just saw the flowers. And the flowers were in very different stages. Some were up and already bloomed. The flowers, the flowers had opened. And some had come up, but they were still closed. And others were just still coming up, and others were just barely emerging from the ground. And it was such a nice image for me of just relax. You know, everything comes in its own time. And the fact that the flower has bloomed already doesn't make it a better flower than the flower that, that's just coming through the earth now. And it, it was a great soothing lesson for me just to settle back into the practice and let the Dhamma unfold. It's going to unfold in its own way, in its own time. We just have to nurture it. You know, we water it and we take care of it. And it was a way of, through that very simple seeing and image, it was a way of letting go of this attachment to self-image, to comparing. So there's the concept of the body, of time, of self-image. Of course, the root concept, which is at the heart of it all, is the concept of self, this concept of I and our very strong attachment to it. How do we create it? How is this concept of self created? It's created in two main ways. It's created when we're not looking carefully enough to see that what we call self is a composite of different mental physical energies. That there is no thing we can point to, just like chariot or car or body, there's no thing we can say, yes, that's the self. When we look closely, we see that this idea is just an idea, and we begin to see the composite elements. But then even when we do see that the self is made up of many composite interrelated elements, we still create the notion of self through identification with different parts of this process. And this is one of the things which we can notice very deeply in the meditation practice, how we identify with various things that are going on. One of the things we identify with a lot, in one way or another, are the bodily sensations. Even when we're past the idea of body as a whole, just feeling the sensations, it's very common to take them personally. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's just 
doing that creates all kinds of reactions in the mind. Whether we take the pleasant ones or unpleasant ones, as soon as we personalize them, as soon as we identify with them, already we've, we've created this notion of self with all the consequences. We get identified with thoughts. Very common, because sensations are somewhat tangible. We, we can get fairly good at seeing them and finally becoming mindful and not reactive. Thoughts are so slippery. You know, we're, we're going along with the breath, sensations, and before we know it, we're caught up and identified with thoughts. And there's that strong sense, my thoughts, I'm thinking. Just reflect for a moment on the difference in experience when we're caught up in a thought, when we're identified with it, and either when we see from the beginning or even if it's afterwards, when we lose that identification and see that it is just a thought without that holding on. It's a completely different space of mind. In one we've created, we've solidified a sense of I, of me, of mine, and in the other there's just spaciousness in which thoughts come and go. There's two technique suggestions for you in learning how to disidentify with thoughts, not to get caught over and over again. One technique especially for repetitive type thoughts, whether it's planning or judging or a particular story that's going through your mind. One of the labels or notes that I find very effective is the note tape, planning tape, relationship tape, leaving retreat tape. Because we're all familiar with tapes. It's part of our culture. And they really are just tapes. They're impersonal, repetitive patterns. They just go around and around. And by using the label tape, it depersonalizes it. We see that it's not I, it's not me. It's just B3 you know, that's playing. The other technique which can be helpful is to view all the thoughts, especially the ones where we get so caught up in the drama and the intensity and we're so lost in it, treat all thoughts as coming from the person behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're sitting in the last row, <laughs> from the person in front. It just changes everything. You know, and do we really know where thoughts come from? We don't invite them. You know, we're sitting minding our own business, minding the breath, and all of a sudden, they come. It's a way of disidentifying a little bit, of not getting so caught and seeing them much more essentially just for what they are, which is just this thought bubble coming and going. All the power that they have is the power that we give them. Thoughts have no inherent power or substance at all. It's only what we give them. 
And so just to begin to see that and explore offers a tremendous opportunity for spaciousness and ease and just let them come and go. They don't belong to anyone. They're not self, they're not I. Personalizing sensations, identifying with thoughts. We identify with emotions a lot. It's a big area where we create this sense of self, where we solidify this sense of self. You know, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm bored, I'm excited. That I am is totally extra. That's something that we are adding to the experience. What's actually happening is that due to certain conditions, a certain mind state is arising. That mind state doesn't belong to someone. It's just coming out of conditions and will disappear when the conditions change. We take this identification with emotions even further and even more destructively. We don't rest with saying, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm happy, whatever. A common tendency is then to extrapolate from that, well, I'm a really angry person. I'm a fearful person. I'm a wonderful person or whatever. And we build a whole superstructure of self on this one little moment. And just to see how we're doing that, how the mind is creating this. It's not inherent in the moment. It's not inherent in the emotion. There's no one who is an angry person or a fearful person. Emotions arise out of conditions, disappear when the conditions change, that's all. Identify with the body, with thoughts, with emotions. The most subtle identification, and the one that takes a tremendous, profound mindfulness to see, is the identification with consciousness itself. Because even when we see all of these other things as coming and going and not self, we can still be identified with the sense of the knower or the witness. We're identifying with consciousness, with awareness. And so we create the self in the observer of it all. But Vipassana is very powerful. We keep turning the searchlight of mindfulness onto every aspect of the process, including at times the process of knowing, where knowing itself is the object. And we see that the knowing also is arising and passing. But there's no self, there's no I, there's no me in consciousness. And so as our practice goes on, as we refine the mindfulness, as we refine the sustained observation, what happens is we identify with less and less and less. We see the whole process as this passing show of changing phenomena. That there's no one behind it. There's no one to whom it's happening. 
we really come to a deepening understanding of selflessness, emptiness of self. And we rest then, we rest in the Dharma, we rest in just what there is. I'd like to end with a quotation from Kalu Rinpoche, who recently died and was one of the very greatest of the Tibetan meditation masters. He really sums up all of this in just a few lines. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in this world of concepts, perceptions. There is a reality and we are that reality, the reality of each arising moment. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. Not identified with anything. We see this, we see we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. There is just what there is in every moment. Being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.